Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we conclude our series today, King Size Lessons on Faith and Failure, with a message titled, King Hezekiah, The Measure of Greatness. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 18 to 19 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Bill Leinberger said, we all want to be great, but we don't want folks to know we want to be great. And Jesus said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Do you see the difference between those two statements? The first suggests that we try to hide our passion for greatness, and the second, well, it says that we should embrace it, and then goes on to tell us how to achieve it. In other words, Jesus is appealing to our desire to be great and tells us not to hide it. Be great, says Jesus, by being the servant of all. And so following Jesus' lead, today's study is a study to teach you to be a great man or woman. Today, we're going to be studying the life of King Hezekiah, who reigned the nation of Judah for 29 years, 715 to 686 BC. And according to 2 Kings 18, verse 5, he was the greatest king ever to succeed David on the throne. There was before him and after him no king like him. In many ways, he's the measure of greatness. Now, for one week, we've been doing a series on the kings of Judah in which we're learning life lessons from their lives. And so if you want to learn from Hezekiah, let me ask you, do you want your life to be great or are you content to be mediocre? So today's study is intended for those who want their lives to matter by looking at the life of a man whose life not only matters, but when it comes to looking at over 40 kings who reigned in Judah and Israel after David and Solomon, this man is clearly the greatest among them. He's the poster boy for greatness. He was a man who accomplished God's purpose for him in his life, in his time. Indeed, what he did had eternal consequences. So let's start by examining how his greatness was established. And by that, I mean, what's the environment under which this person rises to greatness? So let's start by examining Hezekiah's life, 2 Kings 18, 1 to 12. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Avi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nahushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, he took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Hala and on the Habor River in Gotsan and in the cities of the Medes because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened nor obeyed. 
What takes up 12 verses in 2 Kings actually takes up three chapters in 2 Chronicles. So borrowing from 2 Chronicles, let me give you a brief sketch of Hezekiah's early kingship. Hezekiah's father was King Ahaz. He was evil. He was an idolater. He sacrificed one of his sons, one of Hezekiah's brothers, as a burnt offering to a pagan god. I remember years ago hearing the testimony of an Indian man. I got to know him. His name was Rochunga Pudayate. He's a great man. He'd been used by God to translate the Bible into his native language. But his father was the chief of a tribe that was a cannibal tribe, headhunters. Rochunga says that as a little boy, he remembered the rows of shrunken heads on his grandfather's shelf and how he hated the gospel when he first heard it. You know, I wondered how horrifying that would be, but that's exactly how Hezekiah was raised, with the horrifying thought that even his own brother was not exempt from being burned as a sacrifice to a demon. You know, the political situation in which he grew up was equally as terrifying. A new nation had arisen, more powerful and cruel than any that they had seen, far more than David or Solomon or any king before him had faced. This nation was a true superpower. Assyria. Historians tell us that Assyria was the most brutal, barbarous, ruthless war machine the world had ever known. Its atrocities and war crimes were a byword, and its name was universally hated and feared. They had begun to demand tribute from all the smaller nations of which Judah was a part, of Israel, of Moab, Syria, Philistia, Edom, Tyre, Sidon, Ammon, all the little powers were now under the power of Assyria. All Assyria had to do was demand money and all the small countries paid. And then when they wanted to, they simply invaded any nation, destroyed its capital, mercilessly killed its inhabitants, and take anyone who was left and deport them, the entire population, to another place. Hezekiah watched as the Assyrians invaded Israel, his brother to the north, and they did exactly that, and now Israel would cease to be a nation. So I want to talk about greatness and how it's established. So first of all, if you don't know it yet, greatness is most often defined in times of great trouble. I don't know of anyone who's ever made a difference, who has made a mark for the kingdom of God, who didn't have to face an overwhelming foe. You know, it is trouble that makes or breaks us. It defines us. It either exposes us as frauds and cowards or as great men and women. Greatness is defined in trouble. We become great or small by how we face the crises in our lives. So don't view trouble as something horrible. View it as an opportunity shaped by God for you to become great. Now, in just a few words from the record of Second Chronicles, let me tell you a little bit more about how Hezekiah was established as a great man. Early in his reign, he repaired the temple of the Lord, which had been allowed to degenerate. Indeed, the entire worship in the temple had ceased. Hezekiah repaired the temple, reinstituted worship in Israel. It may seem strange if you think about it. I mean, against the looming foreign crisis, this man doesn't look at the threat. He's looking at the Lord, the temple, the worship, obedience to God. That's been neglected, and he wants to clean out the temple, and he wants God's people to return and worship. Now, I can guarantee you something. The Assyrian morning news never picked up on that story. The world would have thought that he was doing something that was completely irrelevant. You know, the world expects everyone to react to a crisis in terms of that crisis. You know, when we have a financial crisis, we think about what? Money. When we have a marriage crisis, well, we think about how do we solve that? 
you know, we live in a world that doesn't want to hear the gospel. And so some of us think, I mean, what are the best techniques to make the church grow? But here's the second marker of how his greatness was established. See, great leaders like Hezekiah always know what really matters. The world never knows what matters. It takes a great man of God to know what matters. Do you know what matters? Worship matters, prayer matters, the word matters, not neglecting fellowship with God's people that matters, faithful in worship, finding your spiritual gift, using it in sacrificial ministry. It's all that stuff that matters. It's huge. Great leadership is also humble and God-focused. According to 2 Chronicles chapter 30, Hezekiah reestablished the celebration of the Passover. That was the celebration of the lamb that was slain so that God would deliver his people. It was God who delivers. And if you think about the New Testament, it's Passover that tells us how Christ, our Passover lamb, was our substitute to deliver us from sin and death. Now, according to 2 Chronicles 31, Hezekiah appointed the priest to serve. And he gives money for the operation of the priest, and he gives out of his own pockets, and amazingly, the entire nation starts to tithe. Yeah, tithe gives generously for worship, and everyone begins to follow his lead, and they begin to give. And that leads to a a fourth principle of greatness. It's called leadership. Leadership inspires others. Now, this is the background to his greatness, and it's amazing how many of us miss this. You know, I sometimes hear Christians say, I'm going to make a great impact for Christ. Let's say they get involved in politics or in business or, you know, something. But they neglect these matters, worship, the word, prayer, preaching, giving, serving, etc. You'll never be great if you don't know what really matters. But that leads us now to how Hezekiah faced the greatest crisis of his life, the crisis of the Assyrian army. 2 Kings 18 verse 13 says, In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Yeah, a truly great man was about to face a crisis. Every day we hear from listeners from right across the country, and your words of encouragement mean so much. Sean recently wrote, I often listen to Dr. John's Bible teaching while driving to work. It's given me great insights into God's message to his people. Back to the Bible Canada is indeed an inspiration. But we're so grateful for messages just like these, but they only happen because of your partnership in making Bible teaching you can trust available to as many people in as many places in as many ways as possible. One way we want to do that this month is by sending you our very new free combo CD series called Joy in Tough Times. Five messages from Dr. John and five Laugh Again episodes to encourage you and to remind you of where confident joy is really found. So just call us today for your free copy of Joy in Tough Times by calling 1-800-663-2425 or by visiting backtothebible.ca. In Hezekiah's nation of Judah, city after city fell to the Assyrians, and now it would not be long until they stood outside the gates of Jerusalem, and they would come to smash down its walls, destroy the temple, kill its king, and transport the entire population to another place. Nothing like this had ever happened in the history of Judah. 2 Kings 18, 14 to 16. 
And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Let me try to explain all that. Early in his reign, in the time of wealth and prosperity, Hezekiah had been involved in beautifying the temple, and now he's forced to strip that beauty away. So how do we understand that? Well, I think on one hand, we could see that Hezekiah is gaining a brief respite so that he can garner up his resources for what will lie ahead. See, at this time, Hezekiah is doing all that he can, knowing that that's not going to be enough, and that's a king-sized lesson for all of us. Whether you're fighting external enemies or internal enemies, including your own sin, please know that even though the odds against you are larger than you can imagine, and they are, God calls you to do what you can. For instance, you can't win the war over your flesh, but you must act. Be faithful in reading the Word. Form relationships of accountability, like in a Bible study that you attend. Pray. Keep from the place where you're being tempted. Do what you can, knowing it's not enough because you need the Lord. And that's what Hezekiah did. His efforts were feeble, but that doesn't mean they were insignificant. But the pressure was about to heat up, 2 Kings 18.17. And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshikah with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem, and when they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. Now, the Tartan is the commander-in-chief, the man overseeing the great unstoppable army of Assyria. He in rank was second only to the king. The Rapsaris, that was the chief eunuch, and the next in command under the Tartan, and the Rabshikah was, in fact, the king's chief cupbearer and also the field commander. Now, these were all very important officials directly under the king. And then Hezekiah surprises the Assyrians. He doesn't go out to meet them. He sends his representatives. In effect, he's saying, I'm not speaking to the underlings of the king of Assyria. In short, Hezekiah is saying, I do not consider myself in any way inferior to the king of Assyria. <laughs> the commanders are shocked. They say, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? We'll destroy you like any other people we've already destroyed. And if you say that you're basing your confidence on your God, well, your God is not going to be any better than any of the other gods that we've already destroyed. Tell you a story. Back in the year 1830, a British archaeologist by the name of Major Taylor was on an archaeological dig in the ancient city of Nineveh, which was, in fact, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And he discovered what has been called a prism, it was a six-sided column made of baked clay, a hexagon, on which all six sides were covered with writing, some 500 lines. And it turns out it was an Assyrian description of King Sennacherib, the king of Assyria who threatened Hezekiah. The description begins by calling Sennacherib the favorite of the gods, a mighty man, a perfect hero, the man who consumes all his enemies with a thunderbolt, the man who all kings fear. Then amazingly, the prism contains the words of Sennacherib in which he describes attacking all the cities of Judah 
And then it describes receiving tribute from Hezekiah. And then he goes on to say that he surrounded Jerusalem with his army. And in his words, Sennacherib boasts, I have shut up Hezekiah as a bird in a cage. Now, interestingly enough, the prism never says any more. I mean, you'd expect that it would talk about how he had destroyed him, but the prism simply ends. No further words are spoken. But the Bible tells us what happened when Sennacherib didn't have the courage to tell the end of the story. You know, they met the officials of Hezekiah. They seemed confident, so they fished around. Did Hezekiah have a secret agreement with Egypt? But no, it must be something else. And this brings us to the second principle of rising greatness. First, you have to do all you can, but second, you must wait on God. And that's the entire secret of Hezekiah's greatness. Hezekiah reckoned that he had a great God and that God was for him. Did you hear that? Hezekiah was not convinced he was a great king, but he was convinced that he had a great God. God was for him. And that kind of confidence is called faith. And faith tells us several things. One, God is not angry with me, nor has he rejected me, but the anger of God we know in the New Testament has fallen on Jesus and that Jesus and I are united. His future is my future. And second, if then God is for me, who can be against me? If they fight me, they'll fight against God. Now, believing that may not immediately change the external situation, but I tell you, it will give you a great confidence in your struggles. Whatever enemies you face, base your confidence on God. But the Assyrians are laughing. No God has ever delivered us from their hand. Your God won't be able to do that either. And all the people of Judah who stood on the wall at Jerusalem looking at the horde are silent. No one says a word. King Hezekiah has told him, say nothing. And what then does Hezekiah do? He sends his men to go speak to the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah was a contemporary of Hezekiah. And Isaiah sends him a message back. He says, don't be afraid. None of those men you see standing outside of Jerusalem will enter this city. This army will return home humiliated. And then Hezekiah enters the temple of the Lord. So let's read a part of his prayer. 2 Kings 19, 16 to 19. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. And if you miss how Hezekiah prayed, I think you're going to miss the entire point of this account. The idea of greatness will permanently pass you by if you miss this. Look at verse 19. That the world would know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Here's why Hezekiah is great. It turns out he's not trying to defend himself or his city or, for that matter, anything. What Hezekiah is all about, he's a man who longs to see what Moses had predicted would happen. Numbers 14, 21. One day, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Hezekiah's great delight is the thought that God will be glorified. That's what he wanted. God, he says, manifest your glory in the earth. So how does this event end. 2 Kings 19, 35 to 37. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people rose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. 
and as he was worshipping in the house of Nishrach his god, Adramelech and Sherezer his sons, struck him down with a sword and escaped into the land of Ararat, and Esherhaddon his son reigned in his place. See, God treated Sennacherib in the same way that he treated Pharaoh of Egypt. And when in the year 1830, Major Taylor discovered the prism, it turns out that the glory of Hezekiah's God was still remembered even in our day. It still testifies to us today. Do you want greatness? Listen, Sennacherib, with his great army, was not so great after all. Yes, he had shut up Hezekiah as a bird in a cage, but those ended up being the last words he spoke on that subject. And the final paragraph was written by God. Sennacherib, the great king, was hacked to death by his sons. But Hezekiah, whose only weapon was his confident trust in God, reminds us that God alone is great and that God blesses those whose eyes look to him and take pleasure in the glory of God. See, the pathway to true greatness is to give up our own greatness and see the greatness of God, surrender to him, and to be confident that if God is for us, who can be against us? Thanks so much, John. You know, your, your message today reminded me one of the highlights we experience when we take people on a pilgrimage to Israel is Hezekiah's tunnel. Maybe you could reflect on the significance of that story. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great story because even though I didn't raise it here, I mean, when you go there and when you know the story of Hezekiah, I mean, it suddenly becomes very plain. So, you know, the king of Assyria has surrounded Jerusalem, but before that actually happens, Hezekiah is making preparations. He doesn't want to have happen what, you know, happened to the Jebusites uh, when David uh, took the city from them. He went up the water shaft. So, so Hezekiah constructs a separate water shaft that can't be penetrated and that will give the city the amount of water that it needs. So, so he did actually make all the preparations that he could possibly make. And that's, you know, just an amazing story. And, you know, if you go to Jerusalem, you've got to go to Hezekiah's tunnel because it speaks to us of these very events that are spoken about here, of a time of great distress. And yet it was a time, as we know, um, that God delivered his people. And that's the, the wonderful truth that we all can remember, that in the end, God delivers us. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again next week, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. You know, some things don't mix. Oil and water, plaids and polka dots. It's not that these couplings never occur, but our minds don't really readily pair them. The same holds true with our pains and joys, both expected, but we rarely consider them as simultaneous. But God adjusts our thinking. The Bible reminds us that joy can be found in trials and our tears can be turned into laughter. It's not instant or self-generating, but a matter of God's grace working within us, like gold refined in fire. Joy can be found in the midst of struggle. So to encourage you as our free gift this month, we want to send you a combo CD series from Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again called Joy in Tough Times. Five messages from Dr. John and five joy-filled Laugh Again episodes. Joy in Tough Times, our free gift to you just for calling 1-800-663-2425 
or visit backtothebible.ca.